All right. Good. Uh, greetings. Greetings. If you are you are here, if you are here for the covenantal commandment, the sabbatical year in the in the Bible with Rabbi Silber, welcome. Um, this is the second session, and we and we will be following. We will be using texts in Leviticus. 25 and Exodus 34. If you have your preferred chumash, you are welcome to follow along. Otherwise, we will share text in the chat and in the screen. Um, if you're watching in Zoom, you are welcome to and strongly encourage you to ask questions. Uh, there, you can always throw questions in the chat and I'll read them out during breaks. Or when we have when Roy Silver pauses, raise your hand or use the raise hand function to get his attention. If you are following along in Facebook Live, please type your questions into the chat, and we will happily and we will happily, not or at least I will happily read your question into there. Uh, Rabbi Silver, welcome. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, I had mentioned we began last week. I mentioned that Shemitah appears in the Torah in four places. In one place it appears at great length, which is in chapter twenty-five of Vayikra. But actually, whether it appears in the Torah four places or five places is a question. And specifically, there's last week we saw chapter 23, and we talked a bit about the presence of Shemitah in chapter 23 of Shemot, which is part of what the Torah calls the Sefer Habrit, the Book of the Covenant. And Shemitah appears towards the end of that important section the part of the whole experience of being at, at Sinai. So that's one place it appears. And then we jumped, so we jumped to chapter 25 of Ayikra, but I did want to point out that there is another verse actually in the Chumash, and it's a question as to what that verse refers. And specifically what I'm referring to is in chapter 34 of Shmot. For example, let's start with verse number 18, just by way of introduction. So chapter 34 is, there's a section on chapter 34, which actually begins chapter 34, I would say verse number 11. This is a section of, of laws, a briefer section of laws, which is present uh, after Moshe receives the Torah a second time. Moshe has prayed to God, God reveals um, the attributes of mercy, Yudgimomidot. And then God agrees to give Moshe a second set of tablets. And then we have in the Torah uh, a set of commandments, beginning in chapter 34, verse number uh, 11. And it goes all the way to chapter 34, verse number uh, 26. That's in section. And it's interesting, it's shorter than the previous longer section of chapters 21, 22, 23. But it's interesting what's here. So the first piece of it, which we're not going to get into, beginning in verse 11, are commandments concerning idolatry, uh, not, to, not to worship any gods, not to make covenants with people that will cause you to worship other gods. Um, do not make a covenant. Do not make a molten image which of course harks back to the golden calf. And then we have a few more commandments. And it's interesting what the Torah has chosen to include. It begins in verse number 18 with the observance of Pesach, what the Torah calls Chag HaMatzot, and Chag HaMatzot Tishmar. So we have the festival of what we call Pesach, the Torah calls Chag HaMatzot. Um, to observe it in the month of Aviv, okay. Then there's, in verses 19 and 20, there are laws concerning the firstborn, the firstborn of animals, the firstborn of humans, people. Uh, it talks about the end of verse 20, not appearing before God empty-handed. And then we have chapter 34, verse number 21. So let's take a look at that verse. Pasuk Kafal, verse 21. And the Torah says, yamim tavod uvayom hashri'i tishbot bechorish uvakotsir tishbot. 
So it translates seven, six yamim. We'll see what yamim means. You, you work. On the seventh, you rest. Becharish uvakotsir tishbot. You should, you should uh, rest uh, at the time of plowing and the time of harvest. And now the question is, what is that referring to? Just to, to take note of the fact, and we'll come back to this later, that this prohibition, six yamim you shall work, and the seventh rest, in the time of harvesting, a time of um, plowing, literally, and harvesting, the next verse says, You shall observe the festival of Shavuot. So this verse, number 21, is sandwiched between the laws relating to Pesach and the attendant law of the firstborn, because of course on Pesach in the Torah, there was the story of the Makat Bechorot. And right after we have this rule about the sixth Yamim, we have Shavuot. So between Pesach and Shavuot, the two holidays that are connected to each other, we have a verse that seems completely out of place. And that is, six Yamim shall you work. The seventh you shall rest at, at the harvest time, at the time of plowing. So here we have a dispute actually in the Talmud and Rashi brings both opinions and the commentaries discuss what is the plain meaning of the Torah. So most of the commentaries assume that the plain meaning of the Chumash, the Ibn Ezra, the Ramban, and it would appear to be so, that Sheshet Yomim Tavod means six days. You you may work, you are permitted to work for six days. But on the seventh day, on the seventh day, you cease from work, seventh day being Shabbat, Tishbot. And the end of the verse, rest at the time of plowing and the time of harvest is taken to mean that harvesting and plowing are two of the prohibited labors on Shabbat. And these are two examples that the Torah gives. In fact, the Rashbam comments on this phrase, Becharishu v'akotzir tishbot, the Rashbam comments, even, even at the time of Charish and Kotzir, even at a time when, um, when you might think, you know, it's the time of harvest, so let the person harvest, otherwise uh, he may lose his, his, his livelihood. At the time of that season when everybody's harvesting or plowing. So even at that time, says the Rashbam, the Torah forbids work on Shabbat and certainly other kinds of labor, which there's less pressing need for, is certainly prohibited. That's, that's what most of the commentaries say, and Rashi has one opinion, that Sheshet Yamim, that Yamim means days. It's days. Of course, the question would be, in any event, why it, why it is where it is in between Pesach and Shavuot, but six days you shall work, seventh you shall rest, at the time of harvest, at the time of plowing. There is, however, another opinion. And the reason I wanted to look at this verse now is because there is an opinion that Sheshet Yomim Tavod Uvayom Tishbot that Yomim doesn't mean days over here, but rather Yomim means years. And we do have examples. The word Yom, it means a time, a certain amount of time. Typically it's days, but Yomim can also mean years. And then the translation of the verse would be, you may work for six years, but on the seventh year you shall rest. Rest at the time of harvest. Don't work your fields at the time you would normally plow the field. And don't harvest the crop 
at the time you would normally harvest the crop. In fact, the, the, the uh, Gemara, actually Talmud Yerushalmi, is found in the Bible as well, understands Bechorishu Vakotzir Tishbot to be saying that you shall rest during the seventh year, which is Shemitah, and now we shall you rest during the seventh year, but you should even rest in some kind of period of time which precedes the Shemitah year. And Rashi brings that opinion. It's what we have a parallel in Shabbat, we call Tosefet Shabbat, or Yom Kippur, to add on part of the weekday to the Shabbat. So we're lighting the candles 18 minutes before Shabbat. You want to add on to the Shabbat. We want to add on to the end of Shabbat. So the Mishnah would seem to suggest, the Mishnah suggests that such a rule of adding on to Shabbat equally would apply to the seventh year, to Shemitah. So don't work the land even before the seventh year. How much is discussed in the Mishnah? But my point is that according to this view, this verse of working six yamim and resting on the seventh is referring not to Shabbat, but refers to refers to, uh, to to Shemitah. If that be the case, then we have another example of Shemitah found in the Torah. And I would add to that, that if in fact one reads this verse as referring to Shemitah, personally, it strikes me that the plain meaning of the text is Shabbat and not Shemitah. But the very fact that the Talmud makes the suggestion and Rashi brings it as one opinion would reinforce the significance of Shemitah. Because remember, Shemitah is found at, towards the very end of the Book of the Covenant, which is basically a continuation of sorts of the Ten Commandments. And in chapter 34, after the golden calf, the Torah is repeating for us some of the commandments, such as no idolatry. And then the, the festivals where you go and encounter God. So the idea of taking the pilgrimage and encountering God. And in the midst of not worshiping foreign gods and having the pilgrimage to encounter Hashem, right in the middle of that, the Torah added the law of Shemitah. That would certainly reinforce for us the idea that we saw last week, that Shemitah is not just any mitzvah, but that Shemitah is actually a, a covenantal mitzvah. I'll come back to that theme in a few minutes about Shemitah being the covenantal mitzvah. Um, what's interesting here, to add one point and then I'll stop for comments or questions, is that you shall work for six days and the seventh you shall rest harp during plowing season and harvest season. If we presume, let's, let's assume that it's Shemitah for now. But what's interesting is the very next verse is, is discussing the holiday of Shavuot. You shall observe the festival of Shavuot, festival of weeks, and of course, we know the festival of weeks is about seven weeks after the beginning of Pesach, which was the preceding rule before the sixth Yamim. So the interesting thing is that if it refers to Shemitah, the very next verse talks about the festival of Shavuot of the seven weeks. And we know, and we'll get to this shortly, that when it comes to the seven weeks, the Torah tells us there's an obligation to count seven weeks. So we also know there's an obligation to count seven Shemitah. And we'll get to that in just a few moments. So this perhaps, if it does refer to Shemitah, personally, I don't think that's the plain meaning of the Torah. But if one takes that point of view, it is striking that first of all, Shemitah is here altogether. And secondly, that it, it's, it, it appears in the Torah immediately preceding the festival of Shavuot. And we'll shortly see and discuss a bit the connection between Shavuot and Shemitah. But before we continue, I'll stop for a moment. Are there any comments or questions 
someone wants to speak up or in the chat, I'll be happy to try to respond. Also, if you're on Facebook, Facebook Live, feel free to ask a qu any questions. If not, we'll just continue, but feel free to question or comment. Okay, there, there are no comments at this point. So then more questions and we'll just continue. And what I wanted to continue with, of course, the main text of Shemitah, of course, is by Yikra chapter 25. And there are many interesting elements when it comes to Shemitah in the 25th chapter of, of Yikra. And one of them, um, one of them is that in chapter 25 of Vayikra, it begins with it begins with Shemitah. It begins with the seventh year is uh, seventh year is Shabbat Hashem, a Shabbat unto God. Shabbat unto God. Shemitah is called Shabbat. Let's let's start with that. It's called Shabbat. And again, the Torah says that you may sow the field for six years, prune your vineyards, gather the yield of the field. But in the seventh year, Shabbat, Shabbaton, Shabbat So this we saw last week. And it's very striking, not just that Shemitah is called Shabbat. It's even called Shabbat, Shabbaton, Sabbath of Sabbaths. But the way the Torah describes it, actually, it puts it in terms of that the land will observe Shabbat. It personifies the land. The land is observing Shabbat. So it's not just that the person observes Shabbat every week, but the land observes Shabbat every year. And we recall that later in chapter 26, we have the admonition, the tochacha, the punishment of exile is the land will make up its Sabbath years, the years that it didn't rest. So it puts it in terms of the very striking term, Shabbat Hashem. And the idea that Shemitah is tied to Shabbat has all kinds of other interesting uh, implications. Maybe we'll touch upon a couple of them later uh, tonight. But the point over here is, apart from the rule of Shemitah, that every seven years you don't work the land, and that we already saw in chapter 23 of, of Exodus. The Torah there said, don't work the land, leave it for the poor person and for the animals. So you, you share it with the poor people and the animals, right? That's what it said in chapter 20 here too. If we scroll down, keep scrolling down and we'll keep going. And it describes what, not working the land. That's what it says here in chapter five. Um, it said in the book of Exodus, you shall abandon the land. Here it talks about not reaping and not about harvesting, etc. And that in verse number five, here it describes that the land shall be for you to eat together with your servants and your high laborers and those that dwell together with you. So the Shemitah here, the land is what we call Hefker, basically. The land is there for public use. You also can take from it, but you know more than anybody else. That's what it says in verse number six, okay? That's verse six, keep scrolling down. And then we see in the next verses, ah, fine. and the animals eat as well. The, the domesticated animals and the wild animal eat as well. And now we have verse number Eight. We have a new rule over here. It's very striking. You are to count, says the Torah, Sheva Shabtot Shanim. Here they translate seven weeks of years. It means seven years. 
seven years, seven times. And the number of the sabbatical years is 49. In other words, it was seven, what's called seven weeks. Seven years it calls weeks, Shabbatot. Shabbat is a period of time, ends with Shabbat. Normally it's days, but over here it's years. So you're counting seven years, seven times, the seventh year, seven times. And you're also counting 49 years. So there's a, a myth for one to say to count. And what, do you, what are you counting towards? And then the next verse, there's a new rule we never encountered before. It says, It says, so you are to sound the shofar, shofar trua, in the seventh month, but not on the first day of the month, but on the tenth day, which is Yom Kippur, and you shall have the shofar, the shofar sounded throughout the land. And the next verse, B'kidash tem, you are to sanctify the 50th year. You are to proclaim freedom or liberty throughout the land. And this year is called the Yovel, Jubilee. It shall be a Jubilee year. Jubilee is simply Yovel. And in this year, everybody shall return both to their possessions and to their family. And the Torah continues to explain what that means. This is the Yovel, the Jubilee year keeps scrolling down. Yovel he, next verse. Yovel he, shnata chamishim shanat yelachem, lo tizrau, lo tiktzeru et zvichera, lo tivtzeru et zirera, ki Yovel he, kodesh tiyelachem, min asadet ochu atvuata. The 50th year is a jubilee. You can't work the fields. That sounds very similar to Shemitah. And the Torah says, for it is a jubilee year, Kodesh lochem. It shall be holy for you. You shall eat none of the produce that the field produces, right? That is, you can eat from the field, but only eat the growth from the field directly from the field. You're not working the field. And in this Jubilee year, everyone returns Here they translate to one's holdings, one's property, and the Torah will spell it out, that the the family field that you have, returns to you during the Jubilee year. Now, let us begin this Jubilee year is Let's put it this way. If you step back for a moment and think about this, it's actually an astonishing idea. An astonishing idea. We'll get to that later. But before we get to the astonishing idea of the Jubilee year, um, I wanted to just to note the parallel here between the counting of the seven years and seven times seven, the 50th year being Kodesh, being a holy year, right? Torah calls it Kodesh, holy. And the parallel, this is chapter 25 of Vayikra. And there's a very striking parallel that appears two chapters earlier, and it's chapter 23. So let's take a look for a moment at Vayikra, chapter 23, which is the parallel. And that's found in chapter 23 of Vayikra beginning in verse number 20, verse number 15. Chapter 23, Vayikra, verse number 15. The, the, chapter 23 deals with the various holidays. So it mentions first the Shabbat, the first holiday, in the beginning of 23. And then after an introduction, these are the festivals. The first festival is Pesach, of course, and the year starts, the year of holiday starts with Pesach, first month. Torah calls Pesach, the month of Pesach, the first month. And then the Torah says, when you come into the land, 
So you come into the land and you reap the, you harvest the fields. You shall bring a sacrifice to the Kohen. That sacrifice is called the Omer. So after it describes Pesach, it talks about the Omer. You shall bring the Omer. And famously, the Torah says the Omer is brought the day after Shabbat. Day after Shabbat. And then it says in verse number 15, so we are to count from the day after the Shabbat. Let's go, let's go now with the rabbinic understanding that Shabbat means Pesach. Torah does call it Shabbat, but let's assume Pesach for our purposes. You count out, says the Torah, seven weeks. Sheva Shabbatot is seven weeks, whole weeks. Until you complete the counting of the seven weeks, you count 50 days. That is to say the 50th day will be a special day upon which you bring a sacrifice. Now we scroll down some more and now the Torah just says, what is this 50th day? So after it talks about the, the sacrifices of the day, you, you bring Two, two breads that you're going to bring. Torah calls them Bikurim, right? Bikurim Hashem. And then it describes the sacrifice further in the next verse, in verse number, was it 18? And we keep scrolling down, keep going down, and you bring another sacrifice, keep going down, keep scrolling down. Ah, Ukratem Bietzem, verse 21. And on this day that you bring all these special sacrifices, the 50th day, Mikro Kodesh Yelachem, this is a holy day. It's a holy day. Do no labor. This is a rule for all time. And then the Torah added a very strange thing in verse number 22. And when you harvest your field, Lo Sadcha do not completely harvest the field, and do not gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the stranger, for the poor person. I am, I am the Lord your God. So what is this about? What is this 50th day after the Omer? So the 50th day, of course, as we know it is the holiday of Shavuot, Chaga Shavuot. And Chaga Shavuot, the Torah says, is you count out seven weeks and you're also counting out the days. Tisbru Hamishim Yom, Torah says, you count 50 days, 49 days, the 50th day being Shavuot. So here we have a very striking parallel between Sfirat Omer which is chapter 23, the counting of the weeks and the days. At the end of this cycle, you have a day which is, which is Kodesh. It's a holy day. The holiness of the day is exemplified by the sacrifices that are brought, special sacrifices. And then the Torah said the strangest thing. In verse number 20, I think it's 22, that when you reap the, when you harvest your field, don't completely harvest it, leave up. And what's strange is, first of all, this verse, by the way, appeared earlier in Bayikra in chapter 19. But what's strange is, this is a list of the festivals. And this particular mitzvah of when you harvest your field, to leave some for the poor has nothing to do with the holiday of Shavuot. It's a general mitzvah. But for whatever reason, the Torah included this mitzvah in the section in which it talks about Shavuot. In other words, when you look at the festivals in Vayikra, when it discusses Sukkot, the festival of Sukkot, there it mentions sitting in a sukkah. 
there it mentions taking the Lulav and the Etrog, etc. When it talks about Rosh Hashanah, sounding the shofar, Yom Kippur, fasting. Those are things you do on those days. But over here, when it comes to Shavuot, the Torah does include a mitzvah, but it's not, it would appear, it's not something you do on Shavuot or don't do on Shavuot. It would appear that the Torah has Davka connected Shavuot to this particular mitzvah, even though the particular observance of not reaping the entire field, but leaving a portion for the poor and the stranger, that's all year round. But apparently the Torah wanted to include that when it talks about Shavuot. So what do we make of that and why is it relevant to our study? So I believe, and I'll take comments or questions after this, that what the Torah is saying is, what is this holiday of Shavuot? You're counting out the days. You're counting out the weeks. And in point of fact, what it seems to be is that you're counting it out from the holiday of Pesach. Pesach is the holiday of freedom. We, was, we, were, we were slaves in Mitzrayim and we, was, we were redeemed from Egypt. For what purpose? What is the purpose of the redemption? So from these verses, it would appear that the purpose of the redemption was to possess the land. Now in, in rabbinic thought, the holiday of Shavuot is identified with receiving the Torah, that the purpose of leaving Egypt was to receive the Torah. That's the rabbinic understanding of it. But in the plain reading of the, of the Chumash, it doesn't sound that way. It sounds you, what you celebrate on Shavuot is possession of the land. Even the sacrifice that's brought, a sacrifice of bread, which is very unusual. Torah usually forbids chametz in any sacrifice on the festival of Shavuot is permitted. Because it's, what it's actually about is a full possession of the land. That's what we're celebrating. That's the biblical Torah's way of presenting. That's how the Torah presents the holiday of Shavuot. So you leave Egypt with the aspiration of possessing a land, and that's the idea of counting. And the idea of the 50th day, after you count the cycles of, of, of weeks and days, you come to the 50th day, and that's the day of sacrifices. And that's the demonstration that it's God's land. And on the, on the practical plane of it, what does it mean to say that it's God's land? Well, if it's God's land, then in a certain sense, you have no, no more providence over the land than anybody else. It's not really yours. And that's the very striking verse that's been imported into the Shavuot description of when you harvest your field, don't harvest it all. And notice the very interesting expression Leave it for the stranger and the poor person. Torah did not say here, give it. The Torah says, leave it, as if the Torah is saying, it's not yours. Don't, don't consider it you're giving the poor person something. Not at all. What, that, what the holiday of Shavuot represents is when God gives us the land, that's on the condition of understanding that it's really not ours. We have the use of the land, that's true. But the land is God's land, and therefore leave it, tazo, abandon it. Abandon, lazo is to abandon. The word shemitah means to abandon. And now if we think about this verse, and we think about chapter 25, the laws of shemitah, then it would appear to be precisely this. You're counting out the seven years, seven times seven, which is parallel to the seven weeks over here. And the 50th year is parallel to the 50th day, which is Shavuot, which is a holiday which celebrates the fact that God has given us God's land, but it's God's land. And then when you get to the chapter 25 to the Yovel, what does the Torah say? The Torah says that in the Jubilee year, the lands revert back to their original owners and the slaves go free. Slaves go free. So it means that fundamentally, and, and the Torah says why that should be. Why should that be the case that the slaves go free? Why should it be the case that 
the land reverts back to the original owners. Um, so in chapter 25, let's find that verse. Um, where is it in chapter 25? One second. Chapter 25, let's see. 1314. Chapter 25, 13 and 14, that is true, but there's another more, even more explicit verse. Here it is. Chapter 25, verse number 23. You may not sell the land in perpetuity, means forever beyond reclaim. The verse actually could mean one of two things. You shouldn't sell it forever. That's one possibility. And the other possibility is you can't sell it forever. You don't have that right. Why not? Because it's not yours. Ki we are it. The earth is mine, says God. Ki gerim v'toshavim atemi modi. You are merely strangers and residents with me. And therefore, in the land of your possession, bring redemption to the land. And Once Rabbi again, Silver, Rabbi Silver. Yes. And in and in Chavav, in uh, in uh, Lamed Bet, it's talking about They also have to release the land. That's right. the The point is that. Right, the point is that in, in this section over here, it's, it's very striking, the parallel to Shavuot, they actually cast the light upon Shavuot. If the land, the land is not yours, I would say it's, to the, it's yours to the extent that you realize it's not yours, it's God's land. And this is true of the land, and it's also equally true of slavery. The slaves go free in the Jubilee year. And the Torah gives a reason for that. The reason is given later in this chapter. It says, God says, these, these people are my, are my servants, literally my slaves, that I took out of the land of Egypt. They're not yours. So the slave in this chapter over here, the Hebrew slave at least, in this chapter over here, is someone that worked for you for a certain period of time. Um, it's interesting that in this chapter, back in the book of Shemot we saw last week, the Torah says that the, the, the male slave works maximally six years and the seventh year goes free. It's interesting that in chapter 25 of Ayikra, it doesn't mention going free after six years. Maybe the Torah presumes that. It talks about going free in the Jubilee year, whenever the Jubilee year happens to occur. In other words, it could be that three years after you purchase the slave is the Yovel, and then the slave would go free after three years. And the Torah, the Torah in Vayikra, Kafhei, doesn't mention six years. But the idea of it is the same, both in terms of the land and in terms of the slave. It's not yours. The land is mine, says God, and these people are mine. I took them out of Egypt. So therefore, I took them out to serve me. That's what, that's what the Torah is saying. That was the purpose of the Exodus, to serve me. They're my Avadim. So they're not really your Avadim. Okay, we didn't eliminate the evidentiary completely, but fundamentally, he's a worker. He's a time-bound worker. And the Jubilee year frees the slave and frees the land. And in thinking about this, and this is all new, that what the Torah may be saying is that even the Shemitah years, the Shemitah is important in and of itself, but Shemitah can also be seen as, as aspirational, as moving towards the idea of counting the Shemitah, like counting the days before Shavuot, is thinking about was aspiring to or wanting to, to reach Shavuot. And Shavuot, of course, is an expression of the fact that it's God's land. 
we are permitted to dwell in God's land if we behave ourselves. And now the Shemitah and the Yovel are the parallels. So we can think about it this way, and then I'll stop and take comments and questions or whatever. We should think about it this way, that in these chapters, starting with chapter 23, you have the Sabbath of the days every week, the seventh day of the week is Shabbat. And then you have, I would say that you, I think you have the Sabbath of the months. The seventh month is special. Why is the seventh month special? Because then we have the festival of Yom Kippur and of Sukkot. And Rosh Hashanah is important in the plain reading of the Torah, because Rosh Hashanah is the first day of the, of the, of the, of the special month. And the shofar you sound, Chumash doesn't mention the shofar, but true or whatever, is probably, I think, in the Pshat, an announcement that the holy days are coming. The holy days being Yom Kippur and the holy days being Sukkot. Those are really the holidays of Tishrei. Rosh Hashanah gets its significance by way of introduction to the two core holidays of the Chumash, which together with Pesach, Sukkot, and Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah may partake of both of those days. And that's probably the reason that, and we'll maybe discuss this as well, that the slaves going free in the Yovel and the lands returning to their owners in the Yovel, the shofar is sounded not on Rosh Hashanah, not on the first day of the month, but the shofar is sounded, says the Torah, on the 10th day of the month. Yom HaKippurim, Tavir Shofar B'chol so there's some kind of connection between Yovel and Yom Kippur. But my point is, this is all new. The idea of seeing Shemitah as a gateway towards the Yovel. That's what you have in chapter 25. And the Yovel takes on a very deep significance. The Shemitah is basically Shabbos. It's, it's holy because it's Shabbos. That's one reason it's holy. But they may be holy for another reason. It may be holy because it, it leads up to the Yovel, counting the seven Shemitah to get to the Yovel. And I'll just make one comment more, and then I'll take the comments or questions, which is that what's interesting is the Torah called the Jubilee, uh, the Yovel, Kodesh. It's holy. And you take the food from the fields. You, you, don't, you don't work the fields. You live off the field. You with the stranger, with the poor person, with the animals, etc. And um, the Torah called the Jubilee year holy, but it never called the Shemitah year holy. So is the Shemitah year holy or not holy? The, the rabbinic understanding of it is that it is holy, that the produce of the Shemitah year, and this is very striking actually in the Mishnah and the Gemara, that the produce of the Shemitah is holy. The produce is holy. We'll discuss that as well. So one, if you ask me the question, why is Shemitah, if we, if we think of Shemitah as, as Kodesh, which is how the Gemara and the Mishnah seem to take it, where is that Kedusha coming from? I would say two sources. One is Shabbos. Shabbos is the holy day. And Shemitah is the Shabbos. Shabbos Hashem. But it's perhaps also deriving its sanctity from another place, which is the Yovel. After all, the Torah says that some of the rules of Shemitah apply during Yovel, and some other rules apply as well. You're not permitted to work the land during the, the Jubilee year, the same way you can't work it during the Shemitah year. So the prohibition to work the land is what makes that, that food of that year holy. Holiness is typically bound up with, 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 with restrictions. One of the major components of Kedusha is restriction. So the Shemitah, the Kedusha of the Shemitah then, the two possible sources, I think both are probably right. It derives it from its being a Shabbat. It derives it from its being a kind of mini Yovel. Different from Yovel, but similar in some respects. Let me stop at this point. Are there any comments or questions about anything that we've discussed so far? That simultaneously Hashem is ridding the land of the people, of the Aivim. So it's also making it free to, um, to be uh, possessed and to be formed by 
the people after the Shemitah, meaning it's it's an assistance to, to, to the Am Yisrael too. Well, the Oivim are only there if we misbehave. I mean, the Oivim are, there is, I mean, we'll get to that about the, the enemies, and that touches on another point about Shemitah, which is very important, and the Talmud picked it up, but it's actually something unique to Shemitah, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes. I did want to, um, since Rosie raised the, made a comment, I wanted to uh, come back to something that she mentioned last week, which is important about the Shemitah's place in the covenantal description of chapter 26. Because there are two covenants in the Torah. There's the covenant here of the in which the Shemitah plays a role. And that's related to the covenant of Sinai. But then there's another covenant in the Torah at the end of the Chumash, covenant of the plains of Moab. And there the mitzvah that singled out is not Shemitah. There the mitzvah that singled out is actually Bikurim. And I wanted to talk about that, more about Shemitah, but what are the, what are the implications of Shemitah being this covenantal mitzvah? And there's certain interesting implications that we'll get to. Is there anybody else who has something to say? Rabbi Silver? Yes. It's a, a small note. It's um, the parallel language between the description of Shavuot in chapter 23 and then the description of uh, Yovel in 25. For, the, for Shavuot in 23, 21, it's, we have So there's a declaration of this day for Shavuot, which is a little strange, but it's Kratem and in Kodesh. And then for the Yovel in uh, 25.10, we have the same words, but in reverse order. The ukratem dror. So there's this Kodesh and dror. Yeah, I don't know what to make of the in inversion there, but mm -hmm. the parallel is clear. I mean, I think that unlike the Shemitah, because the Shemitah, you wouldn't have a declaration for the simple reason Shemitah Shabbos. And Shabbos is Shabbos automatic. Shabbos comes every seven days. When it comes to the festivals, there we speak about Mikra Kodesh. Here we talk about Beitin being the Kadesh, the, the month, and determining which day is the Kadesh Yisrael Vazmanim. mentioned, and our Nusach is Mikadesh Shabbos without Yisrael Vazmanim. So that's a good point. That's a further parallel between them. Um, yeah. Let me. Um, let me get to anybody else. Thank you for that comment. It's interesting. Of the inversion is interesting. Is there, is there any connection at all to um, a, an attempt at recreation of Gan Eden uh, in this, in that that Yovel is sort of the ultimate attempt at getting back in in the real? That's world. an excellent point. That that is actually an excellent point. I think there's a very profound point that Chaim is making. And I'll actually, let me, let me, let me directly, because it actually segues into what I was going to say next about, about Shemitah. What's interesting about Shemitah, actually, I mean, there's several interesting features to Shemitah. And part of the reason I wanted to teach this little four session is because, you know, Shemitah is, is difficult to keep. We'll get to that. But I think it's important to take note of the fact that it, the Torah sees Shemitah not as a, a, another mitzvah, sees Shemitah as something very central. And the Torah in two different places makes the point that Shemitah is difficult to observe. Usually the Torah does not go out of its way to stress how difficult it is to observe a mitzvah. But when it comes to Shemitah specifically, it does make this point. For example, we have it in chapter 25, Verse number 20. It says, chapter 25, verse 20. You will say, How can we eat? For not permitted to, to plant the crops and gather in the crops, how are we going to survive? And remember, if you don't plant in the seventh year, you won't have in the next year either. It's not just the seventh year. So how can we function this way, right? 
So the Torah says, don't worry about it. I'll command my blessing, says God, in the sixth year. And it will produce enough food for three years. So for the sixth year, for the seventh year, and for the eighth year, we'll have enough. And some, some commentaries say that, that this question comes up not only after the Shemitah year, but after the Yovel has been mentioned. Because if you presume the Yovel is the 50th year, and the Jubilee year has the same laws as the Shemitah year. It means you're not working the field for two consecutive years, not just one year. So the Torah says, don't worry about it. I'll bless you for three years. So some explain why three? Because it includes even the, even the Jubilee year. When the Jubilee year comes, you have two consecutive years where you don't work the field. So here the Torah says, people are going to say it's too difficult to observe Shemitah. That's in verse number 20. And what is striking is the following, and this will be a separate session, but actually in the book of Devarim, it mentions Shemitah twice, but the first time it says, every seven years you observe the Shemitah. And this is the Shemitah. And actually in Devarim, it doesn't mention the land at all. Nothing about the land. It talks about how debts become canceled in the seventh year, what's called Shemitah Safim. Fascinating halacha. We'll get to that either next week or in two weeks. And there, the point is let's say I lend you money. So at the end, if you can't pay me back, so at the end of the seventh year, so the end of the seventh year, the debt is canceled. So the Torah says, the debt is canceled. I lend you money. And let's say Shemitah is coming in, in, uh, in, in, in a year or two years or even in five years. So the problem is, why would I lend you money? I'm going to lend you money, but maybe, maybe you won't be able to pay me, but you won't pay me back. And once the sabbatical year comes, I'm going to lose my money, right? So the Torah says the following. Um, Torah says, let's find this verse. It's in chapter 15 of Devarim, verse number nine. Be very careful. Don't have bad thoughts. You'll say to yourself, Shemitah is not so far away. And you'll look, look unfavorably upon the per, poor person and you won't lend them the money because you're afraid he won't be able to pay you back. And he will cry out to God, because he can't get a loan. Give him, give him the money. Take your chances. God will bless you. So it's very striking. The Torah has two radically different ideas related to Shemitah. It would appear that one has nothing to do with the other. Maybe we'll talk about that. They're radically different. One is working the land, and one is lending money. In the case of lending money, in the sabbatical year, the debt is canceled. And in both of those cases, the Torah says, we know it's difficult. In the case of the land, don't say, how can we keep this mitzvah? It's impossible to keep it. What are we going to eat? Don't worry. I'll, I'll bless you. I'll give you a blessing, says God. And we have a, a parallel, virtually identical problem when it comes to Shemitah Ksafim. Why should I lend this guy money? In two years at Shemitah. And he's a poor person. Be open to pay me back. Says, says God, don't worry about it. Whether he pays you back or not, I'm, I'm going to bless you. So if he doesn't pay you back, I'll bless you. So don't worry about it. Yes, there's a good chance he won't pay you back. So what you see from the Torah, it's very interesting. And you have this in the Gemara in spades, actually. That actually, Shemitah is difficult to keep. And many people won't keep it, actually. Not just it's difficult to keep, but many people will not observe this mitzvah. And that's why, for example, in the Gemara, we have what's called the Prusbol, where Hillel set up a, a mechanism to collect the money after Shemitah. Mechanism. 
he, you turned your debts over to the court and the court is allowed to dun the other person to demand payment. The individual can't demand payment. So Hilo instituted this Puzbo, which would appear to be on one hand counter to the Torah. Torah says, lend the money and don't worry about it. But apparently people were not lending money. So Hillel maybe violates, in a sense, the letter of the law, but keeps the spirit of the law because he wants the poor people to get a loan. It's for, it's for the benefit of the poor. The principle benefits the poor person. This way the poor person can get a loan. Now, let me just make one other comment about, so this is interesting. And by the way, to this very day, Shemitah is difficult to observe. The reason Shemitah is a, is a fascinating topic is because basically it's a real challenge to, 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 uh, to, to halacha because in point of fact, Shemitah today is not really observed. I mean, it's observed in the breach. That is to say, let's say in the land of Israel is a legal fiction by which the land is sold to non-Jews. And so non-Jews don't have to observe the Shemitah so I can buy the produce from the non-Jews. Um, so the, because, because the problem with Shemitah, I just wanna make this point. The problem with Shemitah is not just the prohibition of working the land. The problem of Shemitah is that you're not allowed to eat the produce that was produced by working the land. That's where the major problem of Shemitah comes up. The produce is forbidden to eat. So to get around that, the produce of a Jew is forbidden to eat, but the produce of a non-Jew is permissible to eat. So in Israel, 98% of the people get around it by either assuming that the land of Israel itself is sold to non-Jews, a legal fiction, or they actually purchase food from non-Jews, they'll import from Europe or from Azo or whatever. So they're not really observing Shemitah, because if we were truly to observe the Shemitah, it would be very, very difficult. And the difficulty of Shemitah, and for some people think the impossibility of observing Shemitah, I'm not saying it is impossible, but many people think of it as impossible. And especially in a global economy, if you're not producing your food and selling it to your customers one year, they're not gonna come back to you, they'll find other suppliers. So the point is the difficulty of Shemitah is found already in the Chumash and the Gemara. Mar understands it. Mar knows many examples of people that don't observe it, which makes it, I think, doubly troubling, or certainly raises a huge question when people say today it's too difficult to observe it. A, a, a response would be, we know it's difficult, the Torah said it, but do it anyway. Um, you have to remember, by the way, that in the Chumash, just as a side point, in the Chumash, in the book of Devarim, which talks about the cancellation of debts, you have to remember, and this is a very important point, it's not like nowadays when you get a loan from a bank, because basically what one of the main, if not the main factor in the, in the Western economy, the American economy, relates to the stock market. The most important thing to know is what, are the, what is the, uh, the uh, interest rates? The interest rates are very low, so that affects housing, it affects the stock market. Stock market will go up because you have no place to put your money, basically. Get 1%, a half a percent. Interest rates govern are the main determinant, probably the main determinant in, in the Western economy. The Torah has no interest rates. The Torah forbids taking interest. I'm, I'm, I'm lending you money. I get no benefit from that. Nowadays, it's the opposite. The banks don't want to lend money to poor people. They want to lend money to rich people. You have to prove that you, you have to prove you don't need the loan to get the loan, basically. That's today. But in the, in, the, in the Chumash, that's not the case. In the Chumash, there's no benefit. In the Chumash, lending money basically is one word, which is tzedakah. It's a, it, and Ramam takes the highest form of charity, giving the person dignity, self-sufficiency and all that. On the other hand, there's no, there's, no, there's no incentive for a person to lend the money. So we understand why somebody might say, why should I lose my money? You know, it's one thing if, I, if I'm getting some interest, some, some, some financial benefit from the loan, but there is no benefit in, in the Torah. So the Torah, this is a very important point. 
Now we're going to have to wait for Chaim's point, which is a central point over here. Shemitah is a mitzvah that's difficult to keep. And actually, it's Chaim's point and it's Rosie's point. I want to get to the two points will be the main subject of the Shia because I want to suggest, and I think we have this already in the Ramban, that the Torah itself understands very well that this idea of Shemitah is a kind of mitzvah for a kind of ideal world. It's not really perfectly, uh, doesn't fit in perfectly to the world in which we live, which is why the mitzvah in, over here in Vayikra, which speaks of the, the earth is God's, God, the land is God's, it's God's land. We are simply strangers in the land. It's not our, it's not your land. And that's where Shemitah comes in. But in the book of Devarim, when we get to the covenant of Devarim, the, the covenantal mitzvah is not Shemitah. The covenantal mitzvah there is Bikurim. And the reason for that, I think, is Bikurim is different. Bikurim is land that I worked. It's my land, actually. In Shemitah, it's about abandoning. Shemitah is to abandon. It's not really yours. As we saw in Shavuos, leave it for the poor person. Didn't say give it to the poor person because it's not yours to give. You have rights and it's God's land. Okay, God, I'll give you 80%, but 20% leave or the corner, whatever. But the book of Devarim is completely different. The book of Devarim is God is up in heaven. It's our land. It's our system of justice. It's our king. It's our judges. The book of Devarim is setting up your own society. So there it's more about me giving somebody my stuff. It's the, there it's not that it's not mine to begin with, it is mine. But there the obligation is, it is mine, I own it. But nonetheless, or maybe Dafka, I'm responsible to give and to share with others. It's about sharing with others what's mine. So the book, if this be true, and I think it is very true, I want to try to demonstrate next week. And Schmidt is about a world in which everything belongs to God. Chaim called it Gan Eden, and that was a very appropriate uh, description, actually, right on target, I think. And that's the world of Shemitah. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that the rabbinic tradition understands how difficult Shemitah is. And over the course of time, it's been difficult to keep it. And that's why all kinds of uh, legal fictions, Prusbo is one of them, and nowadays other legal fictions are have been set up, Cooks, Heter, Mechira, and all that. Now, is that the best path to go was a very good question. I think it's problematic from a certain standpoint, but we can talk about that next week. So next week, I didn't want to pick up these two comments about the contrast to Devarim on one hand and the ideal nature of Shemitah on the other and its difficulty. And the Gan Eden uh, expression is, I think is very much on point as we'll see next week. And then the last session, I did want to deal with Devarim with the cancellation of debts, Shemitah Safim, which applies, by the way, throughout the world. It's not only in the land of Israel. The Shemitah on the land is only in Israel, but the cancellation of debts applies to every place, not only in. So we'll discuss that uh, in two weeks. Next week, we'll deal with the question of the uh, ideal nature of Shemitah in the Chumash. Are there any comments or questions? And I will. You can, remember, you can always send me questions in the um, in my email, dsoberatrisha.org. So, um, Rabbi Wolfish spoke about that with the uh, uh, God aid and concept. A lot of people, uh, you oh, know, he went into that. Did he? Did he? Spoke, in terms of the Chumash, yeah. he spoke about it. Yeah, he discussed the God aid as one theory from some of the Mepharshim, but also Rabbi Cook. Well, I'll, I'll show you. It's, in, it's actually in the Torah itself, I believe. Yeah. But Ralph, Ralph Cook also, there were many stories I remember how, how he regretted that particular move that oh, he made. Yeah. It could be, but regret or not, that is the dominant yeah. way that we deal with it. I don't want to minimize the difficulties of Shemitah. They're, they're, in other words, the difficulties are an individual person can find other ways. It's not impossible for an individual person to observe Shemitah as the Torah says it. The difficulty with Shemitah actually is not on the individual level. 
The difficulty with Shemitah is when you get to the, the national level. When you're talking about national, national level, dealing with other nations, exporting, importing. If you don't export your food for a year or probably for a month or two, you're going to lose the entire market because no, nobody cares. They're going to go elsewhere. And once they go elsewhere, they have a new supplier. So there are, on the, on the, on the communal level, it's difficult to observe. And that's why Rav Cook's, I mean, has anybody come up with a better answer for the community? That's the question. I don't, I have, mm -hmm. not yet. One could say, we'll observe it and the chips will fall where they may. It's difficult as it is. That's a valid position. Okay, it's difficult. You're going to suffer. True. The Torah said that already. If you have to have faith, I'll bless you, says God. But if you have the faith, that's one thing. But most governments don't have that kind of faith. So on the on the on the communal level, it's it's observed in the breach. It's not really observed today on a communal level. But that raises another question about how it should be observed. In other words, do you lose the idea of Shemitah even though you don't keep Shemitah? Maybe the idea of Shemitah can be implemented. And that was the position of Eliezer Berkowitz, which I think is not the topic of these sessions, but it's a very interesting topic. Let me stop at this point. That's just to tell everybody who doesn't know, I'm in Israel. Yeah, it's four o'clock in the morning. Between three and four in the morning, my talk. I know. <laughs> not simple. That's not crazy stuff, but it was a mistake, but I'm happy to do it, but it's now time for me to go to sleep. Well, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Okay, so, all right. So we'll send, send me the questions in the email and I'll hope to see you next week. Thank you. Oh.